0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Change. I'm your host, David Callahan. Black-led organizations have long had a tough time raising money. They've scrimped along with modest budgets and small staffs. Yet in recent years, this has finally begun to change, even before the protests in June 2020 over George Floyd's death Black-led organizations were benefiting from an uptick in financial support from foundations and major donors that were bringing a stronger racial justice lens to their work. In the second half of 2020, that rising stream of funding turned into a torrent of new support for Black-led groups. It's anyone's guess whether that support will continue in coming years. But there is no question that today there is a larger, stronger, and better funded infrastructure of black-led organizations than ever before. Some of these groups are fairly new and connected to the movement for black lives. Others have been around for decades, like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. One black-led organization that I've long kept an eye on is the Joint Center for Economic and Political Studies. It was founded in 1970, and for 50 years, the Joint Center has been the only think tank that exclusively focuses on issues of concern to black people. The Joint Center has gone through some tough times in the last decade, but lately it's been in a period of growth and renewal under the leadership of its president, Spencer Overton. A lawyer by training, Spencer is also a professor at GW Law School and is somebody I've known for many years. It's great to have a chance to talk to Spencer today. A quick word about me before we begin. I'm the founder and editor of Blue Tent, which features unique in-depth reporting on progressive politics, and I'm also founder of Insight Philanthropy which covers the world of foundations and major donors. Please visit bluetent.us and insidephilanthropy.com. Even better, I hope you'll subscribe. And with that, let's get started. So hi, Spencer. Thanks for coming on the show. David, thanks so much for having me. So since uh, George Floyd's death, we've seen a kind of unprecedented level of activism and grassroots movement building around challenges facing black Americans A lot of people and institutions are paying attention to these concerns like never before. What I haven't heard much about, though, is the role of research and public policy in this moment and in shaping an emerging agenda. You lead an organization that calls itself America's Black Think Tank. What's the conversation uh, among board members and staff been like since June? And, And how have you kind of navigated this moment and seen, sort of figured out where you all fit in? Right. Well...
1: David, I appreciate the question. I think that, you know, we were founded in 1970 to support black elected officials as they were moving from being activists to kind of a part of the establishment. And to a certain extent, I think that there are some parallels with that time. Obviously, we're in a completely different time. But in terms of people talking about how to convert protest into policy, how do we make real the demands that people are making to address structural racism, and as the Joint Center, how can we leverage our relationships with the Congressional Black Black Caucus and other entities to really make those things real? So how can we ensure that we're connected to communities and uh, Black communities? and ensure that they have uh, a voice uh, here. So I'm very conscious about how do we get outside of the beltway? How do we stay connected? How are we
0: listening to the right people? And how are we giving them a platform? It's a tricky role for think tanks. On the one hand, you have to really be focused in the mix with policymakers, with the legislators inside the beltway. On the other hand, you need to be connected to people out in the ground in communities? How do you kind of strike that balance? Well, you
1: know, I think that that is a distinguishing factor of the Joint Center. You know, I, our, our partners on so many things, whether it's, you know, a Demos or whether it is a, an urban institute or a CAP. But I, I do think that our direct relations with, with black community uh, is important. Uh, and so certainly we believe in rigor. We believe in numbers and and data, you know, like I will talk about, I'm sure our congressional staff diversity work, since we started doing it, we've seen a 200% increase in top staff in the Senate. and So, it's great, and it's important to pay attention to numbers. But this is also about relationships with with people, and I think that that is something that we look uh, at as a a distinguishing factor uh, in terms of these direct relationships with people who are in Black communities and community organizations.
0: So I know the Joint Center went through some lean times. It kind of fell below the radar. Its budget was down by a million dollars a year. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was worse than that, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah,
1: there was a lot of debt. There were a lot of problems, a lot of challenges there. And it's funny uh, because David, I was just looking at fortune 500 companies in 1970 when we were founded, right? Studebaker, American motors. Right. One of the most popular chains, restaurant chains, was Howard Johnson, a thousand Howard Johnson's. Now there's one uh, in the country. You know, Borders Books was founded in 1971. And, you know, those other companies are no longer with us. and, And the Joint Center is still around. And I think that I'm glad we're around. But I think more importantly, I'm glad that we have adapted and we're focused on challenges today not those of yesterday but today whether it is voter suppression online or whether it is the future of work or whether it is algorithmic bias or, or other challenges that are unique that the coronavirus and the pandemic and its adverse impact on black communities really grappling with these emerging issues. So certainly lean times, and there was a lot of stuff that's not fun to deal with in terms of kind of restructuring and people and and that kind of stuff. But, you know, the mission was important, the organization is important, and it remains relevant.
0: I wonder if you think that the challenge of funding the Joint Center during those lean years and raising money now is made more formidable by the fact that uh, a largely white-led philanthropic sector has historically underfunded black-led organizations. When you go out and try to raise money, do you feel like that is, uh, I mean, obviously we're in a moment of opportunity right now for black-led organizations, but do you feel like this is a, you know, you have this extra burden to carry?
1: There's certainly an extra burden, but, you know, a point that I often make is that progressive philanthropy and philanthropy generally needs to invest in black institutions as well as black experts. And really the the same applies to the Latinx community, I think. So certainly we need all hands on deck in terms of systemic racism and the challenges that are there. But this isn't just a notion where there's some PhD who studies some folks like a guinea pig and gives us some answers and we've got the answer and we can implement it and it's all over, right? Building institutions that are equipped to take advantage in good times And also when there's a downturn, when, you know, there is xenophobia and racism, where there are politicians who exploit the fears of people in order to get elected and stoke racial fears, you need institutions, strong black institutions, to be able to respond. And these institutions are also important in terms of being training grounds in terms of cultivating just a class of black leaders who may stay in that organization or they may go to other organizations. So my point is that this infrastructure, an important part of really kind of the progressive infrastructure, is you know black organizations and black-led organizations and they're worthy of investment i think the same thing rings true with regard to experts i think too often in progressive circles you get some black folks who are doing engagement work which is important comms work all very important but in terms of policy experts I think there's an underinvestment with regard to Black and uh, Latinx experts, and we should all make a conscious decision to invest in developing that talent, both those of us who are at institutions like the Joint Center and, and those who are at mainstream organizations.
0: Well, I do think that there is a tendency among progressive funders to really focus on backing organizations and communities, backing frontline work. There's been a uh, lack of appreciation for think tanks. Uh, you and I certainly have, are familiar with that. From trying to Deimos, build demos yes. during those early years, conservative funders, in contrast, have been quite happy to lavish places like the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute with tens of millions of dollars. As you've gone out there making the argument for kind of a revived Joint Center, have you found funders to be receptive?
1: You know, I have found funders to be receptive, but David, there's really an initial question, right, which is having the capacity to follow up with funders, et cetera. I mean, there are a number of asks that I haven't made. For example, we just hired uh, a vice president of development. She's coming in from Brookings, outstanding star. But just having the basic capacity to follow up. As a professor, you know, I'm at at GW uh, on the faculty there. I love the ideas, and I'm excited about the ideas, but that's only a part of running an organization, as you know. Kind of the infrastructure of the organization, how do you have goals and move toward those goals and not get distracted by other things? How do you respond legitimately to things like the pandemic that come up that you have to respond to here? And how do you make the decision on when to stay true to the goal and when to revise? So... I think that running an organization is, you know, kind of different than just, let's say, the substance of where we're going to go in terms of the ideas. And it's fun to get in and talk about the ideas. I think that the running of an organization is just like a different animal and really the scaling of an organization and the running of an organization, right? How do you find stellar talent? I mean, you know this, you know this. And so I think an appreciation of That from funders is important here in terms of how do we scale and build infrastructure. And as you mentioned, conservatives are very committed to building that infrastructure. David, as you know, there are problems that are going to occur five years from now that we can't foresee. But if we have the infrastructure in place, we can grapple with those problems when they come along. But if we don't have the infrastructure, you know, we're just starting from zero.
0: Right. And if you have general operating support that allows you to be nimble and shift your priorities, as opposed to having restricted uh, project grants from foundations, you're more easily able to kind of pivot to to take advantage of opportunities or to deal with new challenges. Yeah, And and
1: the thing that I learned early on, David, was i find myself, I started off saying it was kind of like a Walmart. You know, like low prices live better. Like we'll do all this work for you at this low, low price. <laughs> right? And that was just not a winning strategy, right? We'd end up subsidizing foundations because I don't believe in, you know, substandard work. So we'd end up subsidizing these entities that had all this money because we underestimated ourselves and undervalued ourselves. And so our approach is is now different, and I take responsibility for that for some extent. But certainly having general operating funds and having more flexibility is critical in order to, you know, to scale and respond to the needs as opposed to just kind of this contract project piece and then trying to, I don't believe in doing again, substandard work for some small amount of money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Spencer, you compared this moment to 1970 when the Joint Center was founded. One of the things that uh, we all know about that moment of the civil rights movement 50 years ago is that it faded pretty quickly and was replaced by a backlash from the right and also just a kind of loss of attention from mainstream institutions in I'm wondering if you see the same risk today, that there's been all this attention to the challenges of structural racism in U.S. society, and yet two years from now, this could just be, have faded, funders move on, corporations that have funded work in this area move on, the media moves on, and we're sort of back to where you've been in the past of this being a kind of second or third tier set of issues.
1: Right. So... Some of this has to do with circumstances like George Floyd, right? But it also has to do with things like the hard work, really tens or hundreds of thousands of young people who have been out in the street really laying the groundwork uh, for this in terms of a movement. And so some of this is within our control in terms of what is the narrative in the country, and what is important and how are things framed. And so I I think that I don't, and I'm not saying that you're suggesting this, but I don't look at this like an ocean that we just can't control, right? I think that there are some things that we can do to extend the period where public attention will be on these issues and it's incumbent upon us you know as leaders here and i'd say us broadly to ensure that this window doesn't close i went to a little demonstration at a school in my community and you know it's not the most diverse community but i said well you know i want to support these white folks and show up and they're going to do something in terms of black lives matter i want to want to support them and i got there and there were so many people and there were so few people of color and i was just so moved by you know those folks being there i thought i was going there for them and i turned out i you know i was going there for myself
0: so a lot of the new activists and progressives have framed uh, this issue really around this deep seated structural racism in us society that pervades all aspects uh, housing segregation education segregation, a persistent and deep wealth gap. Do you think that is the framing that is most effective? Is that the framing that the Joint Center uses? Talk a little bit about the language here and how these issues are best discussed in a way that really does address how deep this problem is, but also connects with a broad swath of Americans. Well,
1: well, David, you know, it is difficult because I'm a law professor rather than a communications person, right? But... One thing that we have focused on is, and it's actually a shift from my background as a law professor. As a law professor, I've often focused on race and thought about rights and justice. And our research has really revealed that race has been an essential core of economic development in the United States. So if you think about a new innovation, cotton gin. Founded just a couple of years, just a few years after the ratification of the Constitution, and it leads to the expansion of enslaved persons and slavery. And as you know, for the first six decades of the 1800s, cotton was more than half of U.S. exports. It allowed us to quickly become an economic global superpower, undercutting China and India with this labor, you know, very cheap labor wasn't just a Southern thing. As you know, these New England textiles and banking and shipping lines, and it really allowed the United States to move into a central place in terms of the world economy. And so this is really embedded in us in terms of who we are. This isn't just kind of a distant type of thing. Our original wealth the, the place with the, the Mississippi Delta had the highest per capita wealth was in the Mississippi Delta in the particular part of the 1800s, like mid-1800s, directly coming from the slave labor. It was Silicon Valley, right? And so this has shaped us. It is a part of who we are. We can't deny this. It's a part of our identity, and the question is, What are we going to do about this now in terms of moving forward and having a fair economy?
0: I'm struck by, again, going back to 50 years ago, how much of the most ambitious aspects of the civil rights agenda now seem like they're off the table, even in the present moment. Residential segregation deeply embedded in our society. The Fair Housing Act was developed to go after that. It's largely been unenforced. Schools are as segregated as they are today. And I Interestingly, for all the the protests and activism I've seen, there just hasn't been much discussion of how deeply embedded those segregation and residential, both residential and education patterns are in our society and, and what we can do about it.
1: Yeah, I think that you're right. And maybe too often because of political polarization, we focus on kind of this piecemeal, moderate, you know, one thing as opposed to kind of stepping back and thinking about things in a larger way. But I've just got to believe that in the last year, there are a significant number of Americans who have seen some things that they hadn't seen before and are hopefully willing to rethink things that we take for granted and and particular assumptions that we make. So, you know, I think this is really, we all have our role I look at where we are in, you know, how can we pass this baton? I think there's a certain arrogance that folks had in maybe the 70s or 80s that we can wrap up this race thing in the next five or 10 years and we can solve all these problems, right? These problems have been around for a long time, and it's very likely that they will outlive us and possibly our children. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work on them. That doesn't mean we don't have our roles to play. I've got an ancestor who is an abolitionist, and he played his role even though, you know, his work was not done when he passed away in the 1800s, right? And so, you know, we all have our our work to do.
0: So let's just zero in on some of the research and policy work that you're doing at the Joint Center I know you have this Future of Work program. Lots of talk about work and automation and the gig economy. And you're taking a particular lens to this of of looking at those issues, particularly as they affect black Americans. Can you talk a little bit about what that project is about and where that's going?
1: Sure. You know, when we started looking at this about three years ago, we found people talking about the future of work, Would there be. No jobs, more jobs. They'd occasionally talk about economic impacts on lower income people, but there wasn't a discussion about race and what the racial implications are and the fact that there's so many black folks who work as cashiers or who work in industries as security guards or driving or other professions at high risk to automation, office clerks, that type of thing. In fact, we found that of the 10 most popular black jobs, About six of them are at high risk to automation. They're also, those six are on the list of the 10 jobs that will displace the most Americans by 2030. So there's a large correlation there. And the remaining jobs are are jobs like home health care work that's low pay, low benefits. And so it's very possible if we don't do something that a lot of black folks could end up in those jobs. And so how do we both make those jobs better? And when I say better, I mean better wages, better benefits, but also give people pathways to other opportunities uh, and other jobs and other professions that are higher paying. And while we do all of that and, and try to facilitate mobility, recognize that it's not just skills. Sometimes companies, it's almost like they say, well, you know, if you had the skills, you know, this is on you. (laughs) It's not on us. If you just had the skills, you know, you'd make some money, you'd be fine. And we know that's not the only answer, that there are issues like discrimination, other factors out there. You know the numbers from Derek Hamilton, where he ran the numbers and he found that, The typical white household headed by someone without a high school diploma has more wealth than the typical black household headed by someone with a college degree. So it's not just all skills, it's not just all credentials, there's some other factors out there as well, and we got to grapple with those too.
0: I know another area that you have long worked on at the Joint Center is uh, diversity within government, black representation. In Congress, we are in a period right now with a new presidential administration staffing up. There's a lot of discussion about how diverse that administration will be, how representative it will be of the electorate, particularly that put it in office and especially played an important role in swing states. Tell me a little bit about the the Joint Center's approach to this issue of diversity within government broadly, and then say a little bit about how you're thinking about that within the context of the new administration. Right.
1: Well, David, we have been working on this for about five years. That's when we had our first report five years ago. Back then, we found that less than 1% of top staff, and when I say top staff, I mean staff directors on full committees, chiefs of staff, legislative directors, and communications directors, less than 1% of those folks were African-American, maybe about 7% were people of color, despite the fact that people of color are about 40% of the U.S. population. So people of color are vastly underrepresented in these top roles in the Senate. We went over to the House, and interestingly, if you take out the Congressional Black Caucus and a bit of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the trends are the same. So for example, white Democrats do really quite poorly, even though their districts are about 35% people of color, you know, only about a small percentage, you know, like seven, six, seven, six, seven percent if not lower of their top staff are, are people of color, right? And so we've elevated those numbers and and we've seen some procedural changes happen. Speaker Pelosi created a bipartisan diversity office. Senator Schumer basically created the same thing for the Democrats on the Senate side and they release data annually about staff diversity. So we've seen those procedural changes, and we've also seen some uptick in the number. We are excited that there's a 200% increase in terms of top black staff, but 200% increase from less than 1% is only so, so much, so we still have a lot of work to do. As we look at a new administration, here's what typically happens.
0: Spitzer, I could just uh, hold on that point. What do you see as the reason that even um, representatives representing black districts would have so few black staff and that the numbers for Congress would be so low? What's the sort of deeper uh, explanation you have of why that's been the case?
1: Well, I think that there are a few issues that are going on, a number of things that are going on. One would be that some of these members have diverse staff or at least more diverse staff in their field offices in the state. And so people are placed there, they're facing the public. But then the people who are in Washington DC who are making particular decisions, there's not an emphasis on there and they, they haven't had that accountability. So I think that is one factor that's there. I think that people who get into hiring making decisions, you know, there's a social aspect here. They focus on people they know and that they're comfortable with. So I think that there is some of that that is going on as well. So there are a number of issues, but I guess for me, I found with people who are in elected office, you've got to give them a reason to focus on a problem, that they've got 100 problems out there. And the question is, which ones are they going to focus on? And how do you ensure that they recognize that this is a problem that warrants their attention? You know, if we're talking about people who can solve the stimulus or the pandemic, or we're going to do all these great things and, you know, put someone on a, a different planet, I'm confident that they can figure out how to diversify their staffs, right?
0: What about the uh, deeper pipeline issues here that we we hear about? I remember when I was at Demos, we thought a lot about how to get more uh, candidates of color to apply for policy jobs. I remember meeting with a woman who ran an organization trying to get more college students of color to go to public policy master's programs, you know, so that those students would then come out and go into government and go into think tanks. And she said it was very hard work because a lot of these kids of color are first generation when they're in college. They're under a lot of pressure from their family to go off and and get jobs, making good money. Public policy, think tanks, politics is often not at the top of that list. So do you think that there's any merit to that? And and how do you, and how do you challenge that kind of deal with that right. kind
1: of dynamic. So, so David, I think that's a real factor and we can't overlook it and we shouldn't overlook it and, and this is one of the reasons that I'm happy to have a debate with you on this. It's one of the reasons I'm concerned about litmus tests in terms of saying that like folks who are coming from companies or whatever shouldn't be a part of a new administration or you know something like that. That's a big debate in progressive circles, right? But in terms of the particular issue you're talking about here, one we're starting to deal with some of these issues by doing things like offering paid internships, right? So for a while, a lot of members didn't have paid internships. They give the interns to like their donors' kids. And then that's basically the pool of people who can move into staff positions and the issue kind of replicates itself here, right? In terms of snowballs. I do think that there are some structural factors like that, but I also think we need to be intentional and that there are a number of really strong folks of color who would love to participate in government, and we've gotta figure out a way to give them opportunities as opposed to putting up barriers to their participation.
0: So what is the, in your research, what is the consequence of not having that kind of representation? Mm -hmm. I I know you've talked about when you don't have certain kinds of people in the room, in the conversation, at the table, certain priorities affecting communities of color get left out. And how, how do you document that and research it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we want to do some more qualitative work in this area, but the work that we have done, a few different things that we've found, One has to do with the decision-making and the incomplete decision-making that is there in terms of not appreciating all of the issues and appropriations and legislation being incomplete. So if you think about, for example, the PPP program that really left behind a number of black businesses, this was the response to the coronavirus, right? And it was set up really to focus on kind of mainstream businesses that bank with mainstream banks. So those businesses that, you know, are served by community development financial institutions or minority depository institutions, that really was not the focus, and those lending institutions were excluded. So I think those are the types of things. When you have people at the table who can help center black communities And Latinx communities, I think that is important. That's one issue, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Think about all the people who are nominated and have to go through Senate confirmation. And many of these commissioners who have served in the Senate, who have been on committees, who kind of sail through and understand the game and understand the situation. And if you're not at the table, it's more difficult to be considered for a post like that. There are a number of people who leave government and go into philanthropy. These jobs are really stepping stones to a number of positions of influence in our society. And if people of color are underrepresented, it hurts us as a country in terms of our decision making, but it also hurts us in these other ways as well.
0: And these lower level jobs in Congress, of course, are often the stepping stone to bigger jobs in presidential administrations. Right. We're now in a, a big conversation about who Biden is going to point for these, those 4,000 jobs in the executive branch right. that, that the president has authority over. What do you see is, how do you see this conversation playing out so far in terms of trying to ensure representation, not just for those high-profile cabinet-level jobs, but all the jobs sort of below the surface?
1: So full disclosure... Uh, the joint center has organized 45 other black groups and they're our partners and we're working on we've assembled 2100 names of black professionals so far to be considered by the new administration uh here and you know we're collecting more and figuring out who should be well, where. Uh, And uh, these other positions that you talk about are incredibly important. So for example, the day one positions, and they're day one because they don't require Senate confirmation, but they're very senior positions. Those are incredibly important. These people who are going to start January 20th, January 21st, who hit the ground, those are important roles and really trying to get black folks into some of those leadership roles. And then also, the, obviously, there are about a thousand Senate confirmed positions. Only a handful of those are cabinet positions, you know, many of those are sub-cabinet positions, deputy secretaries, assistant secretary, and more, trying to get black folks teed up for those, and and not just any black folks, but black folks who are uh, committed to community. So we've got the NAACP, National Urban League, Black Futures Lab. Uh, We've got many community organizations as well metromorphosis down in louisiana just a number of, of groups there national bar association lawyers committee etc so i think right now folks really want to make sure they're at the table and just to give you a snapshot david president obama first black president 22 of his votes came from black folks but in september of 2009 His first year in office, only 9% of his senior team, and I'm talking about both Senate confirmed and non-Senate confirmed, were black folks, uh, right? And often what happens with Democratic administrations, it's like, okay, the goal is 13%. It's not 20 or 22, right? It's like 13 is like the goal. And then Republicans often feel like they don't have to do much because they feel like their voters aren't black folks. And so with Republicans, it can be down to two, three, four, five 5 percent in terms, of often on more visible positions that are Senate confirmed, they might be around 5 percent. With the lower level positions, they're more like 1% or 2% with regard to African-Americans. And there are similar, but you know slightly higher numbers with regard to Asian-Americans and Latinx folks here. And so that's the trend that we see. And what ends up happening is that black folks are underrepresented because of that in presidential administrations. And so our benchmark right now is about 20%. Is, is what we focus on and we think that's a, a realistic and appropriate number. And the transition has actually been wonderful in terms of working with us. I think they've got a lot of work to do. You know, They're just starting. There are some positions like Cecilia Rouse, they say that's gonna be cabinet, we'll see. The UN ambassador, I think that will be a part of the cabinet, but we haven't seen any agency heads so far in terms of the big agencies. Mm-hmm who are African-Americans. So we need to see. The verdict is still out. There are a number of people like Mr. Clyburn and others who have expressed concern that they really want to see African-Americans in some top important role. So we'll see. We're working with them, and hopefully we'll see some results.
0: So more broadly, and just to wrap up here, how optimistic are you that the Biden administration will keep issues of racial justice front and center, that these issues will not just sort of fade away as George Floyd's death proceeds further into the past, and that this would be an ongoing priority of the administration.
1: I'm confident that will be the case, and I'm also confident in part because there are people like Mr. Clyburn and other organizations, Color Change, others that really, I think, will hold the administration accountable. I do think that there were so many African-Americans who were so excited that President Obama won that maybe we weren't as forceful in terms of here's what needs to be done. I was on the inside, but I do know that there were a lot of people coming at me who were not African-American. And I know that there were a lot of my friends who were just trying to be supportive and probably weren't as firm with me as they could have or should have been. So I think that there'll probably be a different approach this time. So I'm more optimistic about moving forward. I'm probably more concerned about making sure that folks who have like good progressive values are very inclusive in terms of race, in particular with regard to black and Latinx folks in terms of being inclusive. And I think that there's just some things that we have to have discussions on and work out in a real, frank way, as opposed to suppressing them. So I'm probably more concerned about that than I am about, let's say, the Biden-Harris administration.
0: Spencer, thanks for coming on
1: the show. David, thank you for your work, and thanks for everything that you just continue to build and contribute to our nation and to, uh, to just good values in
0: our nation. I appreciate it. Nice words coming from you.